our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Galatians 3, verses 23 to 29. And keep your Bibles open to that text, if you would, so that you can follow along here as we go. Welcome. Uh, some of you I know have been here at least once before, but, but are back again on a visit, and others may be here for the first time, and some are here every week. Welcome to all of you. We're delighted you've joined us here. We have been in Galatians for some time. <laughs> and we come now to the end of the third chapter of Galatians. And what I see Paul doing in these verses is to summarize much of what he's been saying since the start of chapter 3. We've covered an immense amount in what I know have been several rather long, rather complicated sermons from this chapter. This morning brings us to a partial conclusion. Not a full conclusion. Chapter 4 carries on, but there is a partial conclusion here at the end of 3. Just glance back to the beginning of chapter 3 in verses 1 to 5, if you would, where Paul leads off in chapter 3 with the key question to his Galatian readers or hearers. Really, it's, it's the whole chapter 3 has been addressing this one thing. In verse 2 of chapter 3, one question for you, Paul says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And we've seen it was indeed by the hearing of faith. The hearing of faith. And that means the Galatians, these Gentile Galatians, are just like Abraham, who, verse 5 says, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so our passage this morning focuses in on these same themes. It ends in verse 29, as you heard read a minute ago, this way, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It's our great hope, Christian. And so my hope this morning is that you leave here more clearly seeing what Paul's saying and what Paul has been saying in this chapter. And so you leave here primed to think about what it means in your life. There's just a very basic point being made in verses 23 to 29. You could almost say one basic point being made in verses 23 to 29, which is our text for this morning. There's a lot here, of course. Basically, one key observation to make, and it's this. That in the history of God's people, in redemptive history, in the whole of the Bible, there's one basic division. There was a time before faith came, and there was a time, there is a time, we're in that time now, after faith came. And at the hinge, between the before and the after, there was a turning point, and that turning point, of course, was Jesus. All of the Bible and the history it interprets either looks forward to that turning point, anticipating the reality it will usher in, 
or it looks back at it, remembering and applying its significance as a present reality. This is the central idea of this passage. But the remarkable thing is, you will find that you identify in your own life with either one side or the other, as we'll see. Because even though you and I are in the time after faith has come, it's entirely possible to live as though it never did. So, first then, we consider this time before faith came. And that's verses 23 and 24. Now, Paul writes, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. Now, if you've been here, you know Paul's been talking a great deal about the law, hasn't he, in chapter 3? You've been here the last few weeks, you know that. Why then the law? Was, in fact, the question we asked and that we, we tried to answer last week, following Paul in verses 19 and following. You remember the law was added, Paul said? And we saw that it was added because of transgressions, Paul said. The transgressions of the people of Israel, this is going back to verse 19 and following, that their hearts were hard. We read it in the psalm this morning, didn't we? They didn't trust the Lord. And in such a condition, the law couldn't give life. And so righteousness wouldn't be by the law. It couldn't be by the law. Paul says, why not? Because of verse 22, where we ended last week. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. And so we saw that the problem wasn't with the law. The problem was with the heart. The problem was sin. The problem began long before Israel was ever on the scene in Genesis 3, where in response to human sin, God places a curse not just upon humanity, but upon the whole creation. Everything is imprisoned under sin, Paul says. Everything remains under the controlling power of sin and therefore is powerless to free itself from sin. God has to rescue us. God has to rescue the world. But of course, from last week, the shocking conclusion of Old Testament history, as we saw last time, is that Israel, on the whole, wasn't rescued. That Israel, on the whole, remained under sin, that they were no different. That even after God had rescued them in the Exodus from Egypt, do you remember that? We went through all these Exodus passages. They were no different. They were under sin. And so when the law came, it didn't bless them. It cursed them. Or, as Paul says in verse 23 now of our text, 
before faith came, we, and here I, I think he's referring to we Jews, as Paul's putting himself in there, we Jews, as Paul himself was, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned. The law was our guardian, Paul says in verse 24. Our paedagogos is the Greek word. Our pedagogue, you can hear pedagogy in that, can't you? In the Greco-Roman world, this guardian, this paedagogos, this pedagogue, was one whose primary function was the care of the son in the family who would eventually become the heir. The guardian had responsibility for the son and the family who would eventually become the heir. The paedagogos was responsible to guide the son to and from school. He wasn't the school teacher. The paedagogos was responsible to watch over the conduct of the son in general so that the son would be, the goal was to be well equipped someday to take over the duties of the household. The whole point being, that while you had this pedagogue, this guardian watching over you, you weren't able to inherit because you were a child. You were being governed until you had the maturity to do what was required without the external constraints. That was what the law was to Israel. They were being hemmed in, shut up, confined, held in custody, enclosed. Why? Why was the law their guardian? Answer, because they needed one. Because they weren't ready to inherit. And in this context, brothers and sisters, what is the inheritance that's in view? Well, it's in verse 29. It's the very end. Heirs according to the promise. It's the promises given to Abraham. They weren't ready. If we've learned anything in chapter 3, if I'm making any sense to you for months now on end, if, if any of it's coming through, it is that you can only be an heir of Abraham by faith. Right? By being part of the one people who experienced the one covenant reality with the Lord we looked at two weeks ago. It's only by faith. And did Israel as a whole have the hearing of faith? No. <laughs> That's exactly what they lacked. And so the law was their guardian. But the law couldn't change their hearts, right? It couldn't give the inheritance to them. I read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2 this week. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. I read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2 this week. It's amazing. This isn't just Paul. It isn't just Galatians. Listen to how Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2 describes what we've been seeing here in Galatians recently. For, this is Hebrews 4, verse 2. For good news came to us, 
just as to them. Good news came to us just as to them. And in the context, it means Israel, if you read Hebrews 4. So first of all, think about the fact that what came to Israel was good news, just as to us. But Hebrews 4 verse 2 says, the message they heard did not benefit them. Why not? Because, Hebrews says, they were not united by faith with those who listened. They were not united by faith with those who listened. Or, in other words, put it more simply, because they didn't have faith. Oh, some did. Some listened, right? Hebrews 4, verse 2, with those who listened. Some listened. Some heard, right? But most didn't. They were not united by faith with those who listened. This is fundamental, friends, to how you read the Bible. The reason the law didn't benefit Israel was because it didn't meet with faith. Faith is the mark of maturity, which the law itself taught. I said that briefly last week. We're going to dwell on that concept much more in the weeks to come, that the law itself taught faith, but their hearts are hard, right? And so the law kept Israel in captivity. It exposed Israel's sin. In fact, it, it, it imprisoned them until the day of which Jeremiah spoke in Jeremiah 24, verse 7, the day when I, the Lord, will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. It says, and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart until that day. It's all about the heart. And so then we turn to the hinge point. We turn on the hinge point, in fact, the coming of faith. This is significant. So catch this, Paul. Paul uses this word, faith, in verse 23. You're looking at it there. In a very interesting way, doesn't he? He says, now, before faith came. But what does he mean by that? Well, from just within our text, we know what he means by it. He means by it what he says in verse 24. So glance to 24, where he says, the law was our guardian, until Christ came. You see the parallel there? Before faith came is parallel to until Christ came. And so as Paul uses it here, faith coming is simultaneous with the coming of Christ. Now, Paul doesn't mean that there wasn't any faith before Jesus came. Of course he doesn't mean that. The whole point was that Abraham had faith, and so do all of Abraham's offspring. And Hebrews 11, if you want another reference, lists examples of faith from throughout the history of God's people. There were believers justified by faith all along. I've said it multiple times. Everybody's saved the same way in the Bible from start to finish. There was always a remnant, Paul says. Romans 11, remember Romans 11, verse 4? I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
the Lord said. Remember last week, it wasn't all of Israel that would have been wiped out had they seen the Lord at Sinai. Many of them would have been. Many would have perished, but not all. Remember that insight when we looked last week at Exodus. So faith was there. But it wasn't the main characteristic, right? Some had faith, but most didn't. It would be accurate to say there wasn't much of it, on the whole, in the history of Israel. We've seen that again and again and again. But now, Paul says, faith has come. By God's grace, a time has come in which faith is the main characteristic of the people of God. In fact, faith defines the people of God in the new covenant, does it not? And that people, Paul says, includes even Gentiles. But it's not. Please, I hope this has been clear. It's not because the law taught one thing and Jesus taught another. It's not because the law taught one thing and Jesus taught another. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think, Jesus speaking, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. There's not one jot or tittle that will pass away. I've come to fulfill them. Fulfill them where? We'll see, just a minute. It's not something different in terms of content. It's different because now Jesus makes it all possible. Because now the Holy Spirit is opening the hearts of the hearers. Because now that Jesus has come, the means of forgiveness, the forgiveness promised God's people through all time, the means of forgiveness for all God's people in all times has finally arrived. And now that means of forgiveness is clear for all the world to see. And so God is in the process now of fulfilling the promises he's made. The promises of Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. We've read this multiple times. To give new hearts by the power of the Spirit. Here's Ezekiel 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's the hearing of faith. It's the obedience of faith. It's life in the Spirit. And it's happening now. It's happening now. Verse 25 of our text in Galatians 3. Moving now into the reality after faith came. We did before faith came. We had the coming of faith in Jesus after faith came. But now that faith has come, Paul says, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, 
in Christ Jesus, through what Jesus has done for us, His sacrifice for sins at the cross and His pouring out of the Spirit into our lives, by virtue of the cross plus the Spirit, as realities in our lives. That's what Paul means there. In Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith. Now Paul uses the sonship language there. Intentionally, I think, because of the technical language of the Pythagogos, where he's emphasizing the full legal status that is ours because of Jesus. You're no longer under the guardian, but you could very well say children, as Paul does in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. You are all children of God, he says in Romans 8. He by no means, no, by no means does Paul intend to exclude women in any sense here. In fact, listen to Romans 8, verse 16, because the point there is similar. Paul writes there, the Spirit himself bears witness. The Spirit. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. Can we dwell there for a second? Sometimes I think we say these things and we just we hear it so much, we just think, yeah, that's right. That's what I am. <laughs> Christian, child of God, what exactly are we inheriting? What exactly are we inheriting? Well, the answer is we're inheriting the promises given to Abraham and to his offspring, right? Verse 29, we've read it already. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You are in line to receive the inheritance God is preparing for his children. But what is that? Because according to the New Testament, this determines how you live. How strong a reality is this for you? Can I ask that of you this morning? How strong is this reality in your life? How much in view are these realities in your life of faith? Because what's promised us is everything. The kingdom of God, Paul will say in Galatians 5 verse 21. Eternal life, Paul will say in Galatians 6, verse 8. A new creation, Paul will say in Galatians 6, verse 15. The world, Paul says in Romans 4, verse 13. The city that is to come, Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verse 14. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12, verse 28. A better country, that is, a heavenly one. Hebrews 11, verse 16. 
a new heaven and a new earth, John writes. In Revelation 21, verse 1, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. This is your inheritance, Christian. It's real. It's physical. It's a new heavens and a new earth where you'll live with God eternally as we were always meant to do. Do you live in light of that fact? This is what God long ago promised to Abraham and to his seed. It is the reversal of the curse. It, that's the point. We're going back to the garden in the end. It is the reversal of the curse. It is the restoration of fallen humanity. It is the renewal of the whole creation. And the Bible says, if you can dare believe it, that you'll be part of that as a real Thing. No longer everything under sin. This is your future, Christian. Do you believe that? I mean, does that shape how you live? It shaped how Abraham lived, didn't it? Explicitly, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, it says, For he was looking forward, said this of Abraham. How do you live by faith? Trust in the promises of God for the future in response to the provisions of God in the past. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. How much of that did Abraham see? He got one little, it was one little speck of land. What are you looking for? You are heirs according to the promise, Paul says. You are. Now, that is, according to verse 27, as many of you as were baptized into Christ. As many of you as were baptized into Christ. It is for you who have put on Christ. So I want you to see something very concrete here now. That for Paul... When you have the faith that means you're a son or daughter of God because of what Jesus has done for you, that is, when the cross and the Spirit are realities in your life, when you're forgiven at the cross and you're empowered by the Spirit, when you have that faith, the hearing of faith, something else just will be true of you. You will be baptized. Right? It just comes up so quickly, we're almost not ready for it. Notice how in verse 26, Paul's talking about you being sons of God through faith. And then in verse 27, he says of the same group, as many of you as were baptized into Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, for Paul, baptism is the common entry point into the Christian community for everyone. Because baptism is the sign and seal of faith. You have faith. Your life is lived now that faith has come. You're baptized. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, for the early Christians, we lose this. We've lost this in some sense. For the early Christians, baptism was the principal way in which you professed your faith in Christ. Or at least it was a major part of it. I mean, notice how Paul can just assume that all of them have been baptized. It was the identifiable right of entry into the believing community. Paul simply had no category in which to understand the concept of an unbaptized Christian. Because such a thing wouldn't have existed in his churches. We need to think about that. And I want to say very clearly to you, if you have faith, you must be baptized. Not because we believe people are regenerated through their water baptism. I don't think that's what Paul's teaching here. We've been in Galatians long enough to see that for Paul, that regeneration is distinctly the work of the Spirit. But did that mean it was optional to be baptized? Not at all. And there's no evidence I can find in the Bible that there was much of a gap between faith and baptism. And I've been challenged thinking about this week, thinking I need to refine some of my pastoral practice along these lines because I can't escape the clarity of verse 27. Can you? It is as many of you as were baptized, Paul says, who have put on Christ who are being conformed to Jesus, who dress in the garments that signify the reality of who you are. So I'm saying to you, baptism is part of the obedience of faith. That in fact, it is the primary sign of such faith. So primary that to be lacking in it is to pose at least a serious question as to the reality of that faith in your life. So, if you've come to Jesus in faith, but you aren't baptized, you come talk to me. <laughs> Please, because there can be no reason that I see to delay any longer. And of course, here in Galatians 3, remembering where we are in Galatians, the amazing thing about baptism about who are included in the people of God now that faith has come, the amazing thing is that it was for everyone. No matter your race or no matter your social status and no matter your gender, right? You were baptized in Christ. You have put on Christ. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What's the point? The point is there's no human distinctive that makes you part of the people of God, brothers and sisters. What includes you in the people of God is putting on Christ. Living by faith as a child of God. Being baptized into Jesus Christ. 
For you are all one, Paul says, by virtue of what Jesus has done. The realities of the cross and the Spirit are for everyone through faith. It's not that the distinction Paul lists here are now erased in Christ. The point is that those distinctions are subordinated to who we now are in Christ. That Christ is the decisive thing about us. Not that we're Jewish or Greek. Not that we're slave or free. Not that we're even male or female. In the new community of God's people entered into by faith and experienced by the presence of the Spirit in our lives, the way in is available to all. And human-made barriers are put to one side. We, you and I, we scarcely see the significance of that from our present-day vantage point, at least speaking for myself. We hardly see it. But in the culture into which Paul is speaking, position and status prevailed in every way. One's existence in Paul's world was totally identified with these realities. In Paul's day, by the very nature of things, your position and your status gave advantage to some over others so that Gentiles had advantages over Jews and Jews then took refuge in their relationship with God, which they believed advantaged them before God over the Gentiles. And there's mutual hatred both ways. Masters and slaves are consigned to roles where all the advantages went to masters. And the same is true for men and women, where women were dominated by men and basically consigned to childbearing. And it is in such a context... that perhaps upon some reflection in some ways is not entirely unlike our own. That Paul asserts that when people come into the fellowship of Jesus Christ, significance is no longer to be found in being Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female. This was to stab at the very heart of a culture sustained by people's maintaining the right position and status. I don't know, you think position and status mean anything today? In Jesus Christ, the one whose death and resurrection inaugurated the new creation, all things have become new, brothers and sisters. The new era has dawned, which means there's just one remaining question as we finish. Are you part of it? Paul's described this turn of history from before faith came to after faith came. But the question left to us is a simple yet profound one. On which side do you find yourself? I mean, of course you're living in the time after the coming of faith. The Lord Jesus Christ died on a cross 2,000 years ago to bring about the forgiveness of sins and the possibility of new life by the Spirit. And yet... It's entirely possible to live as if that never happened. To remain imprisoned under sin. To be under a guardian. Experiencing the ways of God as only a burden. As some kind of burdensome, deadening description of a life in reality you know nothing of. 1 John 5, verse 3, 
this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Is that the life you know? The life Jesus invites you to experience for my yoke is easy, he says. And my burden is light. Paul says in verse 25, we are no longer under a guardian. No longer does the law come to us with curse, but with blessing. For as Paul will say in chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 18, when we get there, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The curse of the law no longer constrains you. This is the life of faith. The Spirit so transforms our lives that we love what God loves and we hate what God hates. The law thus transformed from burden to delight. Which side of faith are you on, dear friend? Turn to Jesus and yours will be the inheritance of eternal life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.